This is the Marketing Podcast Network. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question, where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to reintroduce you to Andrea Bartz. Andrea is a Brooklyn-based journalist and the New York Times bestselling author of the Reese's Book Club pick, We Were Never Here. Her second thriller, The Herd, was named the best book of 2020 by Real Simple, Marie Claire, Good Housekeeping, Crime Reads, and other outlets. Her LA Times bestselling debut, The Lost Night, was optioned for TV development by Mila Kunis, who I just saw in Black Swan. She joins me today to talk about her latest novel, The Spare Room. Welcome to Uncorking the Story, Andrea. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat again. I'm excited to have you here too, but remind me, if you will, and the listeners of Uncorking the Story, because there's a bunch of new ones who uh, maybe didn't hear your first interview. Where does your story as an author begin? So my story as an author begins many, many moons ago at this point. Um, I loved writing fiction and stories when I was a kid. And then in, in journalism school, I discovered that I really wanted to be a magazine editor. So I forgot all about fiction and graduated with a degree in magazine journalism, moved to New York and had a career as an editor. And, um, you know, those who have been paying attention to the magazine industry know that it's not doing super well. And so I kept getting laid off places that I worked at kept folding, just ending the magazines. And so when it happened, it was like the third or fourth time back in 2014, 15, something like that. Uh, I guess 14, that was when I decided, you know what, I want to work on something that can't be taken away that I won't walk into work one day and discover that it will no longer, you know, be what I do with my time. So that was the point where I started working on my first manuscript, and that eventually became The Lost Night. So I have to say, I miss magazines, because um, I used to have, you know, boring ones like Business Week, um, but also some fun ones. Whenever I get on a plane, it was like, I'd love to just sit down and, and read a magazine, and they're kind of few and far between. Yeah. Uh, but, but I also feel your pain because I was the editor-in-chief of an industry publication, and um, I learned a couple things 
during that period of my life. Number one, I much more enjoy writing than um, overseeing <laughs> every column. Good to know. Um, good to know. <laughs> which is which was good insight, but also just the business side of it is. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's uh, you know, it, it became a full time job for me to, mm -hmm. you know, and it was, it was a volunteer position for industry, you know, association that I'm part of, but man, I just have so much respect for, for editors and managing editors and editors in chief of, uh, of the rags, as we used to call them when I worked in advertising. Yeah. Yeah. We like really cared about putting those magazines into people's hands and it, it breaks my heart a little bit that that era is over, but you know, now I'm telling stories in a different way. So yeah, I can't there you go. Well, speaking of stories, what can you share with us about uh, the spare room? Yeah, absolutely. So in the spare room, a sort of down on her luck woman moves in with this enchanting couple during the lockdown. She finds herself kind of falling for them and they open up their marriage for her. And at first she really loves being a part of this sexy new world. But when she discovers that their last lover is missing, she begins to wonder if they might actually be dangerous and if she might be next. So it's um, twisty, it's dark, it's sexy. Um, it's a little bit more domestic suspense than the thrillers I've written in the past. Um, and it was inspired in part by my own experiences coming out as bi during the pandemic. Interesting. Well, that's that's big news and a big revelation there. So she's your your protagonist is a, a unicorn. Is that the right term uh, that's used? In I the, think. Well, I've been learning all this too because it's all new to me. But um, it's yeah, I guess the term is a little bit problematic according to people who've been in the community a lot longer than I. <laughs> sure. But yeah, I think I think you could use that term. Yeah. Now you know it's funny. I listened to this podcast. I came across a podcast um called strictly anonymous and i had uh kathy who was the host of that on this show um a while ago one of my most downloaded episodes um probably given the subject matter but um yeah I, it was an education in in terms that i had never heard before um it's uh it's it's fascinating so this is a a big a big life-changing moment for you um happened during the pandemic it sounds yeah yeah. yeah, well, and I I did not become part of a, a triad myself. I'm not, you know, poly. I'm in a, a relation, you know, monogamous relationship with a woman. But um, with this book, we even ended up hiring a sensitivity reader to sort of, you know, look at issues that I wasn't aware of and how I was talking about the poly community and stuff like that. So it was a big education for me as well. Um, so based on firsthand experience and new new knowledge for me. Yeah, interesting. So that's I, I like that idea, though, of of having a sensitivity reader, um, mm -hmm. because, you know, the last thing you want to do is unintentionally, you know, upset somebody or or hurt somebody. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I had no intentions of, you know, obviously hurting this community that I was newly a part of. And, um, you know, in addition, I didn't think about this. I thought it was sort of like, you know, damage control, like preemptive, you know, not taking anyone off. But it made me, the process made me realize it was actually an opportunity to really um, use the book to educate people and, you know, my narrator's journey of learning about what Holly means and how it can be done really badly in the case of this, you know, danger-filled triad. 
um, all the way to how it can be done correctly. Like her sort of educating herself, um, hopefully, was certainly an education for me, but also um, is hopefully bringing it into the mainstream for readers too and having them sort of, you know, learn more about something they might not experience firsthand or know much about. It did, did your sensitivity reader find things that were problematic for you? Absolutely. And it was always stuff I hadn't thought about. I hadn't intended, obviously, anything bad about it, but it was sort of feeding into stereotypes or misconceptions or sort of, you know, using language in a little bit of the wrong way. Um, and then she also, as I said, helped me in a grander sense, um, sort of underline the narrator's journey and like make it a little bit clearer of not just a journey of sort of sexual awakening and understanding her sexual identity, but also like learning about um, this community that she is interested in being a part of. Yeah, I think it's a, a great way of using fiction to educate people because we, we often think of fiction as a way of entertaining people, but it really can be used as a way to, to educate and, and shine a light on yeah, people, communities who, you know, are maybe misunderstood, certainly, um, you know, voices who who don't have that much amplification um, in traditional media. Um, so I, I just talk about that a little bit, kind of using fiction to educate. Yeah, I mean, this was, I guess, my first, my first and foremost goal is always to entertain. So when people, usually it's more that, you know, someone's asking me about the themes or the messages or what I really want people to take away. And I always have to say, like, first and foremost, like, I am here to have eight hours fly by as you read this book and to just not be able to stop turning the chapters, which, you know, hopefully I've still accomplished with this book. Um, but I think, yeah, I've always additionally had the goal of, working in themes that encourage people to think in a way they haven't before, or perhaps like feel empathy for people um, that are not like themselves that they haven't before, or just to understand like different experiences and different ways to react to things and, and um, just sort of getting them to think about what life is like through someone else's shoes, which is sort of empathy is one of our goals in reading, right? There's escapism, but there's also empathy. And then I guess with this, I was um, intentionally thinking about adding a third E, adding education. Um, and that was because for me, writing it was an education as well. Um, and, you know, I identify as queer now. So those elements of this character who always had thought of herself as straight, she always thought she wanted the husband, the minivan, the 2.5 kids. She is sort of going through this journey of recognizing like, wait a minute, maybe those things that I thought I wanted aren't actually coming from me. Those are coming from outside forces and assumptions and our culture, which is very much echoing the journey that I went through and um, discovering things about myself. So I was able to sort of tell this own voice's story, but because I am not part of the poly community, um, it was important for me to learn a lot and get it right and portray that in a sensitive way. Yeah. You know, even when we're writing fiction, there's a lot of self-exploration that happens and we divulge a lot about ourselves onto the page. I remember talking to an author probably this time last year and, you know, she told me that she was, you know, she told me we were having the same conversation. She's telling me, I'm like, what's your novel about? What can you share with, with us? And she's, she tells me this story and I'm thinking to myself, this is, this is your backstory. I mean, I know this cause I knew this about her and she's like, yeah, well, I only understood these things about myself after I wrote this book. Yeah. And she had this like big light bulb moment on. I was kind of, it was kind of cool. And I, I felt it was kind of cool. 
Yeah. I mean, for sure. We, all of us authors are just processing our own experiences and our own thoughts. And for me, I'm always trying to figure out how I feel about something by writing a book. You know, I, I choose a topic or a subject that I know I have a lot of feelings about, but they're complicated. I don't have a clear feeling about it. You know, with We Were Never Here, I wasn't totally sure how I felt about like women's safety and women traveling alone and the idea of women, you know, needing to protect themselves. Like, I feel a lot of ways about that. Um, an even more obvious example is The Herd, where, you know, the, it's sort of a mur murder mystery set in this bougie, exclusive, all-female co-working space. I had some feelings about corporate feminism and sort of commodified feminism and girl boss culture. And I could really argue both ways. I, I wasn't totally sure how I felt about it. And to me, not knowing how I feel about it um, is really tells me that there's going to be enough fuel for the fire for me to explore it and wrestle with it and have a lot of things to say. And I don't think I've ever come out of one of these books with a clear answer, you know, with a, with a definite, like, now this is what I've learned and I can move on. But um, that for me is very much like jet fuel for, for getting through the book and propelling the plot and having my character uh, go through this experience that gets them to think about things differently and see things in a new way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an exploration of your own curiosity. And if, if, if you don't keep following that, then the reader will probably pick up on it too, that, hey, you know, this person just wasn't curious enough about something. I don't know. Um, but it seems like that's, that's, I love that term jet fuel. Um, you know, it's like your curiosity is the jet fuel that propels the, even the motivation to write. Yeah, it's like writing is the only way I know how to process things. There are people who, you know, can do it through movement. There's people who can do it through visual media. There's people who can do it through just talking to other people. And I can dabble in those things, but like the only way to really figure out how I feel about something for me is to write about it. It's it's just that is how I've always been. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I I have a hard time expressing myself verbally most times. So if I need to get into a deep conversation with somebody and I avoid them like the plague, uh, <laughs> you know, I, just, I do not like confrontation, <laughs> but I, I have a much easier time if I sit and write out kind of what I want to say. Now, some people might say that's cheating. You know, you need to talk You know, in the moment. Um, you know, you need to be an active listener. I'm like, yeah, but I need, this is how I work. This is how I process things. That's how I process my emotions. Because I may not know how I feel in the moment when I'm having a, a deep conversation, but I know if I'm if I take the time to write things through, then I'm in a much better place. There's also like a therapeutic part of that too. It's yeah, like absolutely. getting those emotions out, and there's 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 some kind of catharsis in in writing. Absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you've also experienced had the experience of free writing about something, whether you're journaling, whether you're trying to write, you know, get your thoughts out to intended for a person, where you're totally surprised what comes out of your hands. And you're like, I had no idea that was in there. And that's an experience I have when writing my books as well, where suddenly a theme that I've sort of been, you know, building into it without noticing will just bubble up to the surface. And it's like, oh my God, this is what I'm trying to say. Like, there it is. It's been here all along. Yeah, that's pro it's one of the reasons why I don't like to spend like an inordinate amount of time outlining things ahead of time. Like I, I want to know like the beats and where things are going generally, but I love to surprise myself with kind of where things wind up. Um, and I find that I remember once I tried to outline something, I spent like two or three months just with an outline, a very detailed outline, almost like I was putting together like a nonfiction book proposal. Yeah. And 
you know, then I realized it just, it wasn't a fun writing process either, like after that. But once I realized, hey, you know what? Take a step back, you know, go up to 40,000 feet and then just kind of have a sense of where things are going. But, you know, surprise yourself and explore and get curious. And, and you know, then you're kind of writing it like the reader's reading it. You know, you're kind of discovering exactly. things too, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I'm not an outliner at all. I have sort of this, this hook in mind. I have this central, you know, thing I want to explore. And then I'm writing to figure out the answers. I'm writing to figure out what happens next. And I have sort of the headlights in the dark kind of experience of like, generally, while I'm working on one beat, I start to figure out what the next beat is. Um, but I really don't know beyond that. And so it's terrifying a lot of the time, especially for, you know, thrillers and suspense where they kind of need to work like a Swiss clock. Um, but it's also really exciting when all of a sudden a twist presents itself or something new happens that like, oh my gosh, it makes so much sense. It was totally seated. I just didn't see it. The irony is that, you know, for me, it's a ton of fun. I'm experiencing, experiencing it like a reader. I'm so surprised by a reveal or a twist. And then every once in a while you get a review that's like, this book was so predictable. I saw what was going to happen from the first page. Like nothing about it surprised me. And I'm always like, can I hire you? Like, can you be my plot consultant? Because like, I would love for somebody to have told me where all these things were going when I was just like plowing around in the dark. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it happens, right? I mean, there's always somebody out there. And I think a lot of those types of reviews are are coming from a place of jealousy, to be honest with you. But, I do think that as well. Yeah, I, I think I'm I'm still working on developing my thick skin because I think as as writers and creatives, we need to be fairly sensitive and porous. But um, I do remind myself that, yeah, reviewers, reviews like that are for other readers. They're not for the author, even if they're tagging you in it for some reason. And <laughs> I think if, if they took that active step. Yes, even though they, yes, they made the decision to add my name to it. So I would see it. But all that said, I think jealousy and insecurity are coming from it. And you know what? Whatever project you haven't written that's in your head, of course, it's better than this thing that's on the page, right? So there's this whole idea of like, well, if I had written this, I would have done it so much better. And it's like, but you didn't write it. So <laughs> I don't know right. what to tell you. Yeah, I remember talking to somebody once and yeah, I'm a big music guy. We we're talking about you know someone's guitar solo. And they're like, yeah, that solo was so predictable. He could have done more. I'm like he's the one on stage getting paid to do this. And right. we're sitting here in the audience with earplugs in because we're old. So <laughs> I'm like, you can have that opinion, but maybe just don't share it. I don't know. Right, right. I mean, it's like all of us like watching, you know, watching the Olympics while we're eating potato chips and being like, oh, she really just didn't stick the landing in that gymnastics routine. It's like, okay. <laughs> Right. Yeah, well, Let's all remember we have different skill sets. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, who is the person who um, in the Olympics last who had to leave um, or drop out because of mental health issues? Um, yeah. And she came under so much scrutiny. And I'm like, she's at the pinnacle of her sport. Truly. And, and you know, let's let's all you know take a beat here. But yeah, yeah. Let's applaud her for making that very brave decision to right for herself. Yeah. All right. So I always like to get to know my guests a little bit more uh, through not just the writing, but through pop culture. So remind me, Andrea, when you were growing up, favorite TV shows, did you have any? Favorite TV shows when I was growing up? Um, I 
always loved spooky things. I was like pretty young when I started watching the X-Files with my parents. And that was just a, you know, weekly occurrence, like hold my calls. It's X-Files night. I loved Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, I religiously watched that start to finish. And I was really into, I don't know if anyone remembers this. It was called Eerie Indiana. And it was sort of like one of those precursors to Stranger Things that, you know, is like set in the middle of nowhere and spooky things are happening in a small town. And I I remember just really enjoying that. That's one that I think never got a fair shake. The X-Files is never the wrong answer. Um, I love that show. I watched it till the, the very, very end and even some of the movies that came out, even the yeah. reboot that came out a couple of years ago. I think they did six or so episodes. Um, and I remember in one of those, they let David Duchovny be funny. Like they gave him like, and it was, it's so, I love to watch him in a, in a humorous role. I mean, Californication was one of my all time favorite shows. Um, yeah. They did an incredible job with that show of like having such tonally different episodes. You know, there were some that were hilarious and like meant to be so. And then there were some that were genuinely terrifying. And it was sort of like, you didn't know what you were getting into for each one. Yeah. How about music? What did you like listening to? When I was growing up, you specifically mean as a kid? As a kid, I'd love to know as a kid what the young Andrea was listening to. My very first CD that I bought, was it a tape or a CD? Let's see, my first album that I remember buying in some form was Weezer's Blue Album. I also, which I still stand to be clear. Um, and I remember buying the 1994 Grammy nominees CD, which, and somebody can fact check me and maybe it was like 95, I think it was 94. It had, it was the best year for music. It had Alanis Morissette, You Oughta Know. It had Kiss From A Rose. It had What If God Was One Of Us. It had hit after hit after hit. Um, so I was really into, into that. My first concert I ever went to was Lauren Hill with the Black Eyed Peas opening. Oh, wow. She was yeah. with the Fugees, right? Was she in the Fugees? Lauren At the time, she was touring by herself. I think it was okay. the miseducation of Lauren Hill era. Um, but pretty eclectic. And I think what I listen to is still quite eclectic. It's um, a little bit of everything. But I definitely am like on here for the 90s you know, nostalgia trend. And I love hearing Alanis Morissette. Even today, it's never a bad moment when, right. when I hear this. Even though I have to say, I hate the song Ironic. I just, I, I, there's something about it I just do not like. Really? It, I don't think there's a single song on that album that I don't love. With Jag Jagged Little Pill? Yeah. yeah. That's the one. It's a great album. And she was, I mean, she's certainly like, when I think of the 90s, uh, you can't not think of Alanis Morissette. I just, that ironic song just drove me nuts. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Maybe because <laughs> none of those things are really, ironic. nothing was ironic you? though. It was, they were unfortunate things that happened, but it really wasn't irony. Maybe I'm just being no, too nerdy true. about it. You know? It's true. Syntactically, it was not accurate, but it doesn't matter because it was just so catchy. She wrote songs where all you wanted to do was sing along with, you know, sing along at the top of your lungs with the choruses. And there was just so many great little moments in it. 10,000 spoons when all you need is a knife. Come on, that's genius. No, it, it, look, okay. You might you might win me over. I loved, um, well, uh, you ought to know. I used to take a spinning class at, um, I used to work at MasterCard many, many years ago. And we had uh, the spin instructor named Curtis who had that on one of his, uh, one of the playlists. 
And uh, man, that was a great song to spin to, you know? I could see that. I mean, yeah, there's just all that anger underneath it. And and yeah, that driving beat. I think you could really, you could really work out to that. Yeah. Um, well, things you've learned about yourself as an author, kind of, you know, going through your, your own journey. I mean, between, you know, being an editor, working in the magazine business now, you know, with a few novels, lots of um, recognition for those novels under your belt. What are some big lessons you've learned about yourself as a, as a novelist? Yeah, some, some lessons that I've learned include that I'm not an outliner, which I kept thinking like the next book is the one where I'm going to be able to plot it out ahead of time. Because when I'm actually in the middle of writing it and not knowing where I'm going, it's very terrifying, like I said. Um, but I've had to come to accept that that is just my process. And what sort of finally clicked into place is that I'm still doing the step. So every author needs to figure out what their plot is. And plotters do it by writing an outline. They do it by, you know, sitting and listing all those steps out and all the action out before they start writing. And then pantsers like me, those who write by the seat of their pants, we figure it out by writing the first draft and letting it be bad. And when I finally realized like, okay, I'm not doing something wrong. I'm just like writing my outline by writing, like in a different way, figuring out the plot by wrestling through it. Um, then I could sort of liberate myself from berating myself for not starting with everything planned out. Um, and in terms of having the accolades, so my third book, We Were Never Here, was the one that, as you mentioned, was a Reese's Book Club pick. It was New York Times, a New York Times bestseller for... Uh, a number of weeks. And it was really interesting because when I started out as a writer, it was like, if I could just have a book breakout, if I could just hit the list, then I would feel like a writer. Like then I would know that I'm a real writer and everything after that would be smooth sailing. Every book idea I pitched, you know, my editors would love. Every, uh, everything I wrote after that would be a guaranteed success. Like I just had these ideas that like, that is the thing that if it happens, everything will change. Um, and not necessarily that I was like saying all those things to myself, but it was just sort of this implicit assumption. And uh, I don't want to sound ungrateful because it did happen. I, I pulled a winning lottery ticket and yes, I think I wrote a really good book, but also luck is a part of it. A lot of people wrote really great books that came out that same month. And it was incredible and it was such a ride and so many new readers got to experience my words and that's, you know, totally the dream. And I very much did try to like stop and be like, okay, look around, you're on top of the mountain. That's incredible. But also, you know, wherever you go, there you are. And it turns out your life doesn't completely change. We still had trouble figuring out what my next book was going to be. I still am, you know, kind of flailing about as I start writing book five. Um, you know, the the people whose approval I thought I really cared about, sort of loved ones, where it was like, this is the thing where they're finally going to say, you know, congrats, and like, you've really made it. Like, it didn't come. It, it didn't happen. And I'm still just me, and I'm still just writing. And it might sound kind of depressing, um, certainly, and I don't mean for it to be like, ungrateful, especially towards those who are just starting out and still have this dream or have been working a lot longer. But I found it really liberating too. It was really freeing to realize that like the goalposts were just going to keep moving. You know, now it's like, well, why didn't you stay on the list longer? Why didn't your backlist, you know, see a bounce? Why didn't this, 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 this? So realizing the goalposts are always going to move and like 
these outside markers of success are not the thing that makes me a writer that was really powerful. Like what makes me a writer is that I keep writing and that I actually do have control over. So until they physically like whip my keyboard out from under my fingers, I'm going to keep writing books and it would be amazing if another one, you know, took off. But even if not, that is what I'm going to keep doing. And that's what makes me a writer, not this external stuff that's pretty out of my control. You mentioned something interesting, which was, you know, you used the term, we had a hard time figuring out what the next book was going to be or the next idea was going to be. Who's the we there? Because I'm thinking, hey, you're the writer. Isn't it you who's coming up with that? Or is, or is there like a collaborative element there? There's definitely a collaborative element for me. I don't know what it's like for every other author, but in my case, uh, I have worked with the same agent and editor for all of my books. I signed with my agent in 2016 and we sold, she sold the book to uh, my editor in 2017. So it's been a long time working with these people and I trust them a lot. And they both have sort of a, speaking of 40,000 foot views, they have a sense of you know, my career, what my readers want, what makes a book an Andrea Bart's thriller that I'm a little bit too close to see. Uh, and so I'm the one pitching book ideas and I'm the one saying, here's what I'm interested in writing. Uh, but they both kind of have, I don't know about veto power, but I really value their feedback. And I think, you know, I could make the decision that if my editor said, I just don't think that's the right next book for you, I could say, well, I don't care. It's what I want to write, but I don't because I really trust them. And I am doing this as a job. I want to be commercially successful and not just be writing these beautiful books that are of my heart, but that nobody reads. So in my case, it is collaborative of all of us sort of agreeing that this is like the right next book for me. When you were taking a trip back in time to 2016 or even, you know, preparing for that first book to be sold, did you have that same belief that this was going to be a collaborative process or did you think, you know, th this really is up to me and, and, you know, I, I don't need anyone else to, to help there. I knew that I needed, so I had come to understand that a good agent is sort of like a manager. They're managing your career. And so, you know, I selected one who had an amazing track record and her other clients had different things, different wonderful things to say about her. And so I felt like I was in good hands with her, but I guess I didn't yet know. I knew I wanted to be commercially viable. And so that was something that I, you know, could, could express was important to me that, you know, I was not looking to write, you know, given the two options, I don't want to be Donna Tartt. I want to be Gillian Flint. You know what I mean? Like I could express those things of like, here's how I see my book being marketed and that said, I just sort of thought I needed to stay in the genre. So I pitched a book once I had sold and sort of wrapped up edits on The Lost Night. I wrote a whole sample and outline back when I thought I could do outlines. Uh, I did a whole synopsis of a second book that was a murder mystery that felt, you know, very close to my heart. And it involved, um, you know, some of my own kind of childhood trauma and things that was set within this like very conservative evangelical, you know, parochial school where the stuff was bubbling below the surface and, you know, in, in the Midwest. Um, so there were definitely elements of myself in it. And I just thought it's a murder mystery. Like, great. That's all we need. And my editor was the one who was like, I think what 
makes your books about you is that there's like a cool girl element. There's like this sort of aspirational, interesting women, interesting, ambitious, smart women doing interesting, smart, ambitious things um, that we should continue as a through line because that's what people are going to look for. And she's like, I'm just kind of not seeing it in this story of, you know, a, a man and a woman in this in this uh, church and school setting in Wisconsin. And she was 100% right. But that blew my mind. I did not even realize that there was a through line yet. And so since then, that sort of made me really realize that I don't necessarily know what an Andrea Bart's thriller is. I'm getting better at figuring it out. But like, that is a very clear line for my agent and especially for my editor. She's just phenomenal at that. Um, and so, yeah, I've sort of learned to trust them more and more and um, learned like what they're capable of in terms of recognizing what's, what's the right next step for me. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people think of authors, writers, that it's a solitary process and, you know, make no mistake that a lot of it is time spent by yourself, but there is a lot of collaboration that happens for, you know, bestsellers such as yourself. Absolutely. I mean, to give one example, I had a call last week with my agent and editor to go over uh, the first, I'd sent them like 25,000 words of my next book, book five. And they had a lot of things to say about what was working and what wasn't working and where I should go with it. But then at the end of the call, I was like, oh, my, my deadline in the contract is like October and that's really soon. And they were like, oh yeah, you can take you can take like a year. Does that work? You can send it in in like a year. So just think about that. Think about getting a deadline a year from now. And until then, like they don't expect to hear anything about this book. Right. So that's just, that's me time. That's just me solitary in a room with a keyboard trying to figure out this next stupid book. Well, I wouldn't call it a stupid book, but, uh, but while I'm working on it, I hate it at times. Okay, so well, there you go. Those are the moments. That's right. That then, then it then it is work, right? Then it equals work. Absolutely. Uh, well, exciting. This is great. I know the spare room is coming out in June. This episode will be uh, for those listening. The spare room is probably already out. Uh, <laughs> June twentieth. It's if it's after June twentieth, then it is on shelves now wherever books are sold. <laughs> There we go. And Andrea, if there are uh, social media handles you want to share with the listeners, if they want to follow you anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. I love connecting with readers. My website is andreabarts.com and I am on TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram at Andy Bartz, A-N-D-I-B-A-R-T-Z. Uh, I'm also on Facebook, although I use that less. That's at Andrea Bartz author. So I would love to hear from people. So you're doing the TikTok, huh? You know, on and off, I've been on less of a kick lately, but I share a lot of writing tips on it and and sort of insight and advice for the industry uh, and, and, you know, surviving this wild publishing journey. So if that's interesting to you, then you might, you might enjoy my TikTok. And there you go. Well, I'll put all of those uh, handles in the show notes so people can easily find them. Andrea, thank you for stopping by Uncorking Story and letting me uncork yours. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Mike. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.
You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe.